Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil? H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see, these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one against the other. Now watch them. Old brother left hand, left hand hates a fighting, and it looks like love's a goner. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hot dog loves a winning. Yes, sirree. It's love that won. An old left hand hate is down for the count. Welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 43. We're, we're losing a little track here, folks. Yes. Yeah. We mixed we're... around our entire list slightly, both of us at the same time. As we talked about, I did with Widows. You did it with uh, Before Sunset. Uh-huh. And everything just went to real shit. And well, it's just hard to keep already, track of now. Already I was having a hard time knowing the numbers when our films were lining up and I knew what films we were going to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. adding this in just made it a big old fire for me. Yeah, there's a, a movie I that, believe you're just testing me. Well, I think I'm testing myself because there's a movie I keep thinking is like next week and it's not for like 10 movies. But it's just in oh, my... Screen, screen 3, right? It's in yeah, screen, screen 3. It's just in my mind as like the next movie. But it's 100% not the next movie. So, I don't know. I mean, the same thing can be said about how we've been treating our new movies. But we just assume, because we're so desperate to see Parasite, that Parasite is just going to come. We have a date, finally. Well, it's gonna, It's like the week after next? Yeah, November 1st, it's going to be at the Madison Art Cinema. So, guys, get excited, because we will be having our Parasite review on the episode on the 9th. Hmm. Pretty good. And but, on oh. the episode next week, we'll be finally getting Lighthouse because we're having to travel some distance to get that movie. Yeah. Criterion. Thanks for that. We bad year, weird year so far for like. This is just, you know, extenuating how bad of a year this has been for us. But, that now we're having to like travel distances to see movies that we thought were going to be mildly wide releases. I actually think and it's this a, is a mildly wide release it's too. Proof of the bad year, I think, for movies in the sense that. Big movie theaters ref- are refusing to take out certain things out of, like... Like, The Lion King still has showings. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it, too, still has screenings places. Also, they just are afraid to remove these movies. There is one thing I'd want to ask you, and we can even ask this on air. There is a showing of Irishman that's going to be coming out two weeks before it hits Netflix. Oh, yeah? Do we do, we do it? I... You know why I kind of don't want to do it? Three, Three and, and a half, half hours. hours. Yeah, yeah, me too. Without intermission. I don't know if I want to do that in a theater. I was actually kind of looking forward to like tackling it over the course of two days. I mean, I was going to do it in one shot, but like, 
or from eating my couch. breakfast and then eating lunch, like watching the same movie. Like laying down. Yeah, I kind of yeah, want to yeah. watch it laying down. Slightly. I feel like that would be good. Yeah. And now that's in my it's, like imagine it, if it's, it's in my head. Like imagine if something happens at hour two that blows you away, and you're just like, oh, I need to lay down for this now. Or I want to do. I want to see that again, and I could watch it again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I want to pay for that. We'll see. Experience. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I kind of say we could just watch it on Netflix. Yeah, it's not, it's not like it's not coming out soon. And there's plenty of movies coming out, too. I know. It's kind of... <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Maybe plenty of movies. We'll see. Speaking of plenty of things that are coming out and right now, we are continuing our exodus into the pumpkin beer season. It's getting uh, another... harder. They're, t- they're taking stuff out. Well, pumpkins around this time of year are getting softer. That's because true. They're, because they're rotting. So then that's when I go to the pumpkin patches and kick holes in them. Me too. Which is my favorite thing to do. And the children. Kick holes in the children. And to trick kids into picking up rotten pumpkins so the worms come out. <laughs> Just in, into their mouths. <laughs> How did it get in my mouth? <laughs> it jumped. Um, so, but this is Cambridge Brewing Company. Um, it is the great Definitely pumpkin Definitely a Massachusetts ale. beer. As you see on the... Uh, Nice little barcode there. Uh, this is actually in Boston, right? Because there's a, I know there's a Cambridge Brewing, yeah, Kendall Square. Oh, it's in Cambridge. Sorry, Cambridge, Boston. Is Cambridge part of Boston? Is that a different city? I don't know, man. It's the same thing. I feel like it is probably the same city, but it's they would say they that do, they're not. They do okay nachos at their, at their little uh, brew pub. Have you? Oh, have you been there? Mm-hmm. That. And then right. I actually had, um, you ever see Hot Ones? That that show with that Sean. They're saying not Sean Hayes, something like that. Sean Evans interviews celebrities while they're eating hot chicken wings. Oh, I'm, I've seen like a thumbnail of it. Yeah. Well, like on my news feed, like, like so and so ate a hot chicken wing. They had like the bomb as one of the hot sauces, just like at this Cambridge Brewing, and I tried it. Pretty hot. It's the third hottest on that. YouTube. Did it make you cry? No. I was just like, oh, that's pretty hot. That's it. Hmm. All right. Well, let's see if this is hot. One day we'll be on hot ones. Hmm. Oh, we, we didn't dink it. Oh. You fuck. Hmm. It's a pretty... It starts out like a pretty typical pumpkin ale. But, I mean, to be fair, I am drinking a grapefruit sound Pellegrino on the side. And water. I have three different beverages in front of me. Yeah. Usually that's my purview. <laughs> with, my co- with my extra large coffee while I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> Um, um, it kind of tastes like a. It finishes like a sour. I don't know. If it Do you get that like sour, sour notes? No, it finishes oddly. Or is it just too spicy? So that like spice kind of dissolves into yeah. some kind of it's aftertaste got, that I'm perceiving as a sour. It's a spicy kind of finish, um, like a white pepper almost finish, mm. which would be odd for for a beer, a pumpkin style beer. Uh, it's definitely the forward on the palette is is pumpkin beer just yeah. your very typical pumpkin beer but it finishes with like a bit of a kick i suppose if i'm i i think it's good i don't think it's great i think it's good if i'm if i were to say like something positive about it it's that um it has a lot of flavor and the shipyard doesn't really have a lot of flavor and the rosemary's baby like has flavor but it's not it's like not over it's not pumpkin this is like a just a Pumpkin a beer. jar of flavor. Yeah, yeah. It's which well, is, a jar of pumpkin beer flavor. Not, but not I want, a, but like you know, bad or good flavor. At least it tastes like something. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do like the can art. 
The can art is nice. A little broken pumpkin there. So we'll be finishing next week with... Well, we, I, so we can't tell. Yeah. We can't, uh, right? I, no, I, I mean... I, I could know. do the spoiler alert. Uh, no, I don't think people care. <laughs> but... Um, you know what I thought you were going to say about the one thing you liked about this beer? What? Was that it wasn't Steven Soderbergh's The Laundromat. First you must ask yourself, are you wealthy? Super truth of the world is that most games, for someone to win, well, someone has to lose. It's a fairy tale that actually happened. There's confusion over who has to pay. So they drowned Joe and 20 other innocent people. And somebody's making money from it. It all goes back to this law firm, Mossack Fonseca. So what happens next? What do we do next? In the laundromat, Steven Soderbergh woke up one day and watched the other guys and like maybe the big short and decided, hey, I can do that too. I can quip a lot over a serious topic. And he was like, what serious topic haven't recovered yet that financially screwed over a bunch of poor people? And he sat there. He's like, all oh, those Panama Papers. That was probably something. <laughs> and so Steven Soderbergh got on his phone. I really hope that was the exact conversation you had with him. Called Netflix and was like, Netflix, put all that money in my bank. I'm going to make a Adam McKay movie. And then Netflix was like, wait, do we have Adam McKay on the payroll? And they looked around to their executives and like, I don't think we have a contract with Adam McKay yet. We spent too much money on Sandler. God <laughs> damn it. We could have got an Adam McKay movie. And so then they put the money in at Steven Soderbergh's payroll. And then he, he called up it. a bunch of people that he always gets for like, you know, his Contagion movies and his other goofy nonsense movies. And then he had to spend probably a good 10 to $15 million on Will Forte. Um, <laughs> and Chris Barnell. No, Chris Parnell did it for uh, catering. He's just as and... always there with Will Forte. <laughs> yeah. it just, he was really hoping to be like, get that last man on earth kind of. Uh-huh. Um, and they made this film the Pan- about, about the Panama Papers. Mm-hmm. Gary Oldman and Antonio Banderas play corrupt lawyers who have created a system of shell companies. One such shell company is a insurance company uh, that was the insurer of a boat that capsizes. That is the, what was that, Lake George disaster from like 2005? I don't it's based on a real disaster where like 20 people died. Mm-hmm. I actually looked it up. I was like, oh, that's a real thing. Um, was David Schwimmer also there? I hope so. Uh, yeah, he, you know, friends had just ended. And he's like, well, I got to do some other something. work. <laughs> didn't, get, didn't get on Joey. Boat sidekick. There was no Ross spinoff to be had. Oh, poor, um, poor Ross. Ellen Martin, Meryl Streep's husband, uh, really quickly played James Cromwell. I was like, James Cromwell's going to be in this. I was like, James was Cromwell's out of this. He couldn't put his shoes on. He sold that. Yeah. He was Very really struggling with those shoes. Um, and she uh, slowly unravels with other people the uh, network of corruption that is the Panama Papers. But then the movie kind of just decides to do a bunch of other shit re- repeatedly. Well, just a bunch of uh, vignettes plays, of people kind of And she plays a Latina woman, which is weird and maybe slightly problematic. Well, are, know, are they saying that I don't know the why person she did. that... And she also plays herself. Yeah. Is the whistleblower a Latina woman that worked there? 
are they making that assertion that it was perhaps this one this person or I couldn't I couldn't tell. Yeah, I couldn't tell either. I I couldn't tell. I I basically felt like I had consumed a tremendous amount of methamphetamines when I watched <laughs> this movie. I wish it felt like that for me. It felt like that for me. It um so I enjoyed this movie because it feels like I suffered a terrible fever for <laughs> the hundred minutes or so that I was watching it. Uh-huh. It is very bizarrely paced. It is weirdly jokey. Like all the kind of yeah, all joking. the time. Like it. The only moments where you have any sort of gravity is when you see James Cromwell's body floating, bleeding. I mean, I assume that's that's him that's dead that hit his head. Yeah, I think so. Um, but then it just kind of spirals out to a bunch of jokes. You know, you got a, you got a nice uh, El Chapo joke hmm. there, where Will Forte and Chris Parnell stumble into a back room and end up getting buried, and that's a scene that happens. I, I don't know why that scene's even there, um, just to show how how afraid Gary Oldman is. You know, sorry, this guy. the German Gary Oldman doing his best Danish accent, Jürgen Mossack. Yeah. Why is he doing a Danish accent? Because the guy's Danish. Know. Is he Danish? His name is Jürgen Mossack. I think he's Danish. I would assume he he's was Danish. He's a German-born Panamanian. No, he's a Ger- he was definitely a German. I don't know. I'm... Maybe Gary Oldman got the wrong tape at the library about doing a particular accent. I just know he was very bad. Yeah. The accent is very bad. Antonio Banderas, not so bad. I thought he was pretty good. Yeah, he was pretty good. I was weird. It was bizarre watching a movie and going like, man, Antonio Banderas is really He's kicking ass, really kicking kicking the ass of that Oscar winner over there. <laughs> but he shouldn't have won that Oscar. So, oh, absolutely not. Let's, let's not go back there. Um, Robert Patrick looks pretty old. That was sad for me. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you know the aforementioned David Schwimmer actually kind of doing like a little bit solid work. Yeah, David Schwimmer. And he's thought, somebody that I hate. David Schwimmer thought this was a good Steven Soderbergh movie, didn't he? He did. I felt bad. I he mean, watched. T- he like he was like, mm, High Flying Bird was a success. I mean, we're I gonna assume. get there. And you know, this is this is a serious topic, and I couldn't get in and you know, v, like Vice. So I guess <laughs> I'll just do this. <laughs> he couldn't get in his. As G uh, as W, um, it's funny because for the same reasons that you liked it, I really disliked it. Like from minute one, like when I text, so I texted you a bunch of times when I was watching this movie. From minute one when it started, I was like, nope, nope, I can't do it. I can't, I cannot do it. The th- that jokey tone really kind of like kept taking me out of it, and the the breaking the fourth wall interaction between what Gary Oldman by breaking the fourth wall do you mean the, the non-existence no. of the fourth wall but I don't see what the purpose of any of that stuff was because half of the time so half of the time I guess they're giving us information but the other half of the time they're not telling us anything like the movie opens with like a uh, like a quick weird recap of how capitalism works I'm not sure anyone really doesn't know how capitalism works or like credit and which would be interesting if they were saying something interesting about either of those things, but they're not. It's just kind of a base like information about like, this is what a credit card or this is how credit works. Wouldn't it have been great if it had been like animated, like a, like how a bill became a law. What are those things called? Like the schoolhouse uh, rocks. Schoolhouse rock. Yeah. That'd have been great. That would have been great if they just done a schoolhouse rock capital. Well, so I mean, that's the, I guess that's the point. So well, it's like fun, fun with Dick and Jane that, that Jim Carrey um, 
Tia Leone movie had done like this entire work of capitalism and like showing how, you know, shorting and Ponzi schemes and whatnot works. Um, and it was done like near the end and whatnot. Like that was even done more like tactfully and, and, and maturely than this was done. And you'd expect that movie, the Jim Carrey T. Leone vehicle to be to mishandle something like that. Yeah, and it's just I think there I think the intentions are there, but I think that's problematic also because I think he's just he feels he clearly feels a certain way about this and but he keeps like resisting the urge to just tell us like what that is or why it's bad. He just keeps showing us people like I don't care about the guy who wants to sell his daughter his company because he's having sex with her best friend. And that scene I don't care is about... a good, almost, it feels like third of this movie. But they want me to feel sad for the mother and the daughter. Like Do they? When they yeah, I he 100% like, wants us to feel, feel sad like for them. I feel like he just wanted to pad out the runtime because that is such a non-sequitur. No, and like, this film is like packed full of when non-sequiturs. They get, but it's not, but it's... It's infor- it's got information in it, so it's gotta be like, well, here's how this works. Like you have this com- you have, you know, this company, but he's still like, you know, they told him one you know, if you have the, the shares, then you own the company. But there's still a board attached to the company and the board moved the money out. And it's so it's information based and then the family gets upset and all this other stuff. And I, I think he does want us to feel like that's a bummer for them, that like the dad screwed the best friend and now they get screwed over too. But I didn't feel like they were not complicit, and it's just like the same thing with um, um, Matthias Schoenarts. And I, I didn't, I don't have like the name of the woman that um, that he's dealing with. That you know, she drugs him and he dies, and she puts the porno on and like the coke on the table to make it look like you know he OD'd or whatever. Um, I don't care about either of them. I think that's a uh, no. That was. Like Ros is it Rosalind Chow? It could be. I don't know. The 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 cast list on yeah, this Rosalind thing is Chow. unmanageable. But the thing, so he's giving us. I care about some of these people, and I cared a little bit about Meryl Streep, but I dislike Meryl Streep generally as an actress, and she's not selling it here really. Um, but a lot of the vignettes they use to like prove his point, I don't give a shit about. I don't want anything good to happen to any of those people. And I, I what I found fundamentally interesting about this and and in the sense that it is so mishandled but for me in a great way but it's it's terribly mishandled like this is functionally a terrible film like in every conceivable way this movie doesn't work it doesn't it it scatters itself along its plot doesn't progress in any way it's a series of detached vignettes that deal with aspects of what the Panama Papers would do, but none of it coalesces into an idea. And the film attempts to do that at its end, where Meryl Streep becomes Meryl Streep, and then tells you that this movie, that the entire point of this is about campaign finance reform, which hasn't been discussed at all in the film. Well, if you're writing a thesis paper on the Panama Papers, let's say this, let's let's call a film, let's call this a, a, a thesis. He's making... He establishes a point in the beginning of the flaws of of capitalism and the ways in which capitalism can be mishandled. He then gives you contentions, paragraph by paragraph, these being the individual vignettes going from, you know, the murder, you know, know, kind of like rising stakes. Sure. And Um, then using Meryl Streep as like these transition things. Like, yeah, a woman being scorned, 
um, from and having her insurance money, you know, the ability to get a condo or whatnot to see the same things her husband see, like that being gone, working, you know, um, working with people, people who are Mexican mafia, you know, a, a wife and daughter, you know, scorned by their husband and father who's mm-hmm. been cheating and finally leading to like, you know, poisoning and murder. You know, so these are contentions about like those that thesis statement, and then it just says campaign finance and its conclusion, which there hasn't been a thread whatsoever about the corruption of politics, maybe slightly with the Chinese government, but this is not talking about the and not even (laughs) campaign finance reform in China. They do. I mean, he delivers that with Meryl Streep taking off the Latino woman clothes and then donning a kind of makeshift. Uh, Statue of Liberty. Oh, pose. right. And that's where my text of the the vomiting face came in. And it's funny because I'm gonna we're gonna make our list the same. We're gonna do the same thing as last year. We're gonna make a list of our ten fa- uh, ten favorite scenes from this year. And that's I gonna think, be number six. I actually think it's gonna be on there because I have like a really like intense visceral visceral reaction to that moment. I was just like, oh, he like went all the way into this like. So you're saying a list. That will be the thing that, like, where you felt your abdomen invert. Yeah. I mean, or just kind of like, I don't know. You were like, oh, that's, happened where, to that's me. what my appendix is. I can feel it yeah. trying to pop out of my chest. Yeah, like things just moved around in a way that they weren't really supposed to move It was a real around. annihilation moment for you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, because it's so... That's a good reference. Uh, it's so... Like... Inauthentic and and you know um, virtue signaling and like all the things that all the things that all the Republicans like say about liberals is contained in this like ten seconds or you know five, two minute scene, but that that one brief moment like at the end of it and like I want to talk about other stuff in regards. I want to kind of compare this to to High Flying Bird a little bit and like why that is so successful. And why this is so terrible. What I really just want to point out real quick. Which both of these movies are kind of saying very similar things. They are, but one says it. And that's, so here's the weird thing is that High Flying Bird feels like the stakes are really fucking high. And it's just about, it's this one kid who's going to be a professional athlete regardless. You know what I mean? Mm. But the stakes feel like astronomical. Like they've, the writing's so good and the performances are so good. And the premise is so well defined that it seems really real. And everything carries through. There's, like Kyle MacLachlan, like, yeah. you get, like, the personification of kind of, not evil, personification of the greed there. And right. every, all those stakes. A legitimate personification all of the, the greed. And, yeah, and all those stakes are absolutely connected to that thesis. And they lead Mario, to a point. There's dead people in this movie. Yeah. yeah. There's dead people. And the stakes are higher in the basketball movie Forte. than in the dead people movie. What's that about? But, I'll, like, I'll just... Like, because I don't, I, I can just imagine the smug fucking face that Steven Soderbergh was making when he shot that Meryl Streep scene, like, I'm doing it, fuck you, like, capitalism, Bleh. I just want to point a couple of things out about the person that gave, the, the company that gave him the money for this, okay? Netflix has three main shareholders, like the three guys, um, Reed Hastings, Neil Hunt, and Ted Sardanos. But the following organizations own 
millions of shares in Netflix. The Vanguard Group, Capital Research, Global Investors, Fidelity Management and Research, BlackRock, American Funds, Growth Fund of America, Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund, Fidelity Contra Fund. I randomly looked into one of those, just like, like just picked one and like looked into them. The Capital Research Global Investors Market owns stock in 400 companies to the tune of $314 billion. And those companies include, obviously, Facebook, Microsoft, Netflix, and Amazon. Um, I just picked a company that I never heard of in the list of things that they own stock in. Lamb Weston Holdings has an institutional value of $67 billion. They have 610 investors in them. Again, I picked a totally random company like that invests in them this company called Seyond which is the volatility management and structured products investment division of Natixix assessment management they own stock in 600 companies to the tune of over a billion dollars in short like Steven Soderbergh's movie was made by the laundromat you know what i mean it's a different I laundromat I don't, know, I don't know if you know this tom but how much research you just did there i think this movie has to be on your pivotal film list no. <clears throat> I think it has to be. <laughs> um, just well, like, but you know what I mean? It's a different laundromat. But this is... Man, sometimes you just got to take the devil's money to stab him in the ass. Is that is that a real saying? Did you just make that up? I did. That's, all, that's a good saying. Sometimes you got to take the devil's money to stab him in the ass. <laughs> but do you? And if you're going to do that, like... Do you stab him in the ass with like you a, expect, a brush did you expect wielded Steven, by Meryl Streep? Did you expect Soderbergh to make his like spend his own money on this? I feel like if you're gonna make a money that's saying, was, "What's he gonna make this on an iPhone again?" If you're gonna make a movie that's so anti-capitalism, you can't make it for a company that's like one of the most capitalist institutions in a, in the world right now. You know what I mean? A, a, that's gonna keeps jacking up its subscription prices because it's like not getting enough subscribers. It's gonna just borrow billions of dollars so Martin Scorsese can I mean, just Joe Pesci. I think it just split. It just split stock again to worth like two billion. Yeah, like I don't know if it split stock. You but. can't be. You can't make a movie that's anti the. I know that, like, they're saying, like, whoa, you know, America's terrible at this. It's shell corporations. It's not this other stuff. Are you telling me that, like, the people that are involved in these companies don't own shell, cor like, corporations? Are you, is that what you're going to say? Netflix is a symbol of purity. I must be. Reed Hastings pays all, he must pay all his taxes. Netflix, wherever their headquarters is, probably pays so much taxes on their properties and on their buildings and on whatever they make. They didn't get any tax incentive to build there. They actually gave the state money the, they to had be to allowed to build there. But I think this is why High Flying Bird is so successful and Laundromat is so in, not successful, despite the fact that you enjoyed it. Because High Flying Bird is genuine. Yeah. And this is full of shit. Well, I think also it's focused. Right. And this is... Like, and that's why I call this a fever dream, because it feels like disconnected thoughts. Like, yeah, last night I had a dream where <laughs> I went upstairs here in the Pivotal Film Studio. Yep. And I pulled out my luggage, and there was a bunch of ants crawling around it. Uh -huh. Just a lot of ants. It's a terrible dream. And I looked on the floor, and all the, on the floor were a bunch of pebbles. Just pebbles, because I hadn't cleaned up. Uh-huh. I didn't make that into a movie. Right. And I also didn't make that into a movie and then, like, any other dream I had. And this feels like just a series of disjointed dreams that Steven Soderbergh and, you know, Scott Z. Burns decided to be like, that's our thing. This is the thing. Or just, like, the base, the most basic ideas that they could come up with 
for like how to dramatize the Panama Papers. I just don't, I just don't understand why you didn't make a thirty million dollar remake of Haywire. <laughs> well, you know what's so funny is that like I've I'm generally on the side of Steven Soderbergh's experiments. I'm largely indifferent yeah. to his his normal movies. No, that's true. Like I don't like the like I think the informant is is a complete misfire. Yeah, but I, like, I love Unsane and I really like Girlfriend Experience. Yeah, and exactly. I love High Flying Bird. Um, I was convinced Sasha Gray had a future as like a legitimate actress. I think we all did. And then I watched Would You Rather, and I was like, Nope, never mind. <laughs> She's a good DJ, apparently. Oh, good. That's really good. That makes me very happy. Steven Soderbergh's next movie is going to be about corrupt DJs, and then <laughs> Sasha Gray can play herself in that. Um. But yeah, it's just it was a weird experience. It was I really disliked. I mean, it's funny though because like I liked watching Jeffrey Wright just wear his clothes and his beard and kind of walk around and not sign things. Like some of those performances I really kind of enjoyed, but as an overall movie, I just think it was you know, it thought its shit smelled really really wonderful. As an overall movie, I thought it was a disaster and I loved all 95 minutes of that. <laughs> All right, it's it's just bad, but it's 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 one of those ones that's just like, oh, this is this is fun. You know what else pisses me off about this? Then is that like people really? I've listened to a bunch of podcasts reviewing it, and they're like, well, it's, they, he tried to do the Big Short, but he doesn't do as good as the Big Short. We're making Adam McKay look like a really good filmmaker. Do you only, hear that, people? The only you're making Adam McKay look I'm, good. I'm gonna hot take. The only time Adam McKay did his little cutesy shit about like making a social point well was other guys and that's because that's just in the very end the rest of that is just an okay comedy movie no i thought um i thought the big short was i thought the big short was successful um i hate big short and i hate vice so well vice is just awful but um yeah we'd have to do a big short we'll have to do a big short conversation i'm good (laughs) okay he's just staring at me now We'll be right back with our list. You know what I like, Tom? You know what I really love in film? What do you love in film? Good villain. Oh, yeah. That's why we reviewed villains. Or I reviewed villains a few weeks ago. Because I like villains. Whether they be emotionalists and featureless like Michael Myers are charismatic and almost charming like Scar or Hans Gruber. A movie can be made just by a compelling villain. And to me, the film that rests at my number 43. <laughs> <laughs> what do you- what is this about? I just like how we have to check now. Yeah, I know. 40, what, 40? 40. Is the quintessential, absolute, purest distillation of the villain. Mm. In a sea of great villains, this single performance is so utterly evil, yet charming and charismatic at one moment, and cold and ruthless at another. It is both enthralling and enticing and terrifying and that villain is Robert Mitchum's Reverend Harry Powell and the film is Night of the Hunter I can hear you whispering children so I know you're down there 
I can feel myself getting awful mad. Here is all the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions. Wake up! Come on! Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. Figured I was gone, huh? Run. Hide in the staircase. Run quick! Ruby, get! What do you want? I want them kids. I'm giving you to the count of three to get out of here, then I'm coming across the kitchen shooting. Ben Harper is a poor man in the midst of the Great Depression. His wife and two children look as though they're going down the path of starvation and fear. And feeling as though he's pushed against the wall, he kills two men during a bank robbery for $10,000. It's a good haul. That's a, I don't know how much that is in the modern-day money. I didn't look that up. Hmm. They say it's... Probably a lot. More than $20,000. Yeah, way more. Less than $20 billion. Right in the... Right Between those two. That's the... That's the that's the honey spot between those two numbers. He rushes home, the police hot on his trail, and he finds his two children, good old John Harper and his piece of shit sister, <laughs> Pearl Harper. It just stinks. Yeah, she's like, she may be the greatest villain of all time. I also love how by the end of the movie, John still just looks like normal but dirty. She is a witch. Yeah. Well, because she's now just the feet. Her inside is now her outside. When they get to Lily and Gish's house, she is like a sock puppet. <laughs> ben quickly gives them the money, tells them to not tell anyone else, and is escorted away by the police, where he is sentenced to hang until he is dead. In prison, he bunks with Reverend Harry Powell, a misogynistic serial killer who's been going around murdering widows for their money, but who believes as though he is exacting the word of God. Rethink? I don't... Yeah, but he, God doesn't like curly-haired women. That's fair. That's what he... That's, that's one, the one requirement. But has now been... But has been arrested for car theft. In his sleep, Ben mentions the money. Harry, overhearing him, gets a good idea. Mm. And that idea is to go to the town. What is the town? I can't remember. Does the town have a name? I don't think it has a name because I don't think it's real. Okay. It's, yeah. I mean, it's based on, like, some murder. And get some fudge if he stays for the picnic. And also to court Willow Harper, the widow of Ben Peter Briggs there yeah <laughs> I keep for, I, actually, I didn't see this movie in several years and I thought I forgot Peter Graves was Ben Harper I was like oh no right. I did too and I was like man he was fucking good looking Peter Graves is like in that time I actually felt the same way about Shelley Winters too yeah no no I was like Shelley Winters is very attractive in these movies yeah all these people are yeah, Robert Mitchum's pretty good looking too very good looking people. Well, let me be honest with you. If Robert Mitchum in this, I didn't, I couldn't fault anybody for like falling under the spell of Robert Mitchum because you just look like you don't really have any choice. Yeah. But Willa and Harry get married. Willa's excited to have some sex. 
Harry's like, we're not going to have that sex. Because he is after John and Pearl to get them to tell him where the money is. Willow eventually figures out that Harry's not the good guy he says he is. And so he slashes her throat and puts her in the water. One of the... Oh, man. That entire sequence, when he first has the knife and you get that nice center shot with just such great German Impressionist style angles, you mm-hmm. know? Like, it's no longer film to war. That's, that's, that is absolutely, you know... Um, well, the like whole thing. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari leading directly into, like, Shelley... I assume that was Shelley Winters being stuck underwater. Has, you know, her body floats there. Mm. Just such breathtaking filmmaking. And Harry now chases John and Pearl down the river. Luckily, they find a nice old lady, takes him in, and sees right through Harry's bullshit. I saw this film uh, in early high school when I was starting to get on my kick of like seeing the movies. Mm-hmm. You know, seeing, like looking at the AFI yeah. list, going, like, I have to see this movie and I have to see this movie. And some of them I hated, Citizen Kane. Some of them I really. <laughs> really dug and this is one i really dug um as i said you know i'm always we've talked uh, endlessly about like my fascination with like german impressionism so like seeing that like even hinted at in just a couple parts enthralled me but like you said you can't help but be enraptured by robert mitchum yeah i totally get it a little girl disgusting so we, when he says he's gonna slash a child's throat, he's gonna rip so it's arms going off. to look like he has another mouth. He is, but at one moment he says that, and at another moment he's really excited to eat some fried chicken, and excited to stick around for some fudge. Mm. He thinks that God is really on board of that that woman killing. Yeah, God was one hundred percent on board with the woman killing, and so. You believe while watching this that Robert Mitchum ceased to exist. Well, and here's what I would say too: is that one of the like beautiful things about this movie is that it's so weird. So Robert Mitchum actually seems like appropriately weird for this world that Charles Lawton has created. You know what I mean? Especially the with only like, the only film directed by Charles Lawton. Well, because it got apparently it got. You know, got annihilated in you know at the box office and critically, and he was just like, "I'm not doing this anymore." No, um, but you know, the opening shots of just like Lillian Gish's face telling a fairly rote story from the Bible to those kids, like in the stars, is um, you know, for the year is not like a thing that gets done, and like the the amount of time that he spends lingering over really terrible things is, you know. Again, is seems. I don't know what the word would be, but it's contrary to what other people were doing. Yeah, like it's, it's a movie that doesn't look like any other movies of the period. No, yeah, it's you know this is this is around that the idea of you know the code, the code error, and and this movie dives heavily into you know the fact that she wants to have Willow wants to have sex with him that Willow, you know, and and she's utterly and totally easily gaslighted by him that she quickly descends into his, you know, pure view of madness. Well, and, and even becomes she... convinced that, you know, 
that the reason Ben stole the money was because she wanted makeup and perfume and not the fact that he was concerned that his kids would starve to death. Well, then he even, when he slaps her in the face and she's just like, oh, I, you know, you did that because of, you know, what, I forget what exactly what she says, but she's totally cool with it. She just smiles and lays there with her, like, arms crossed across her chest and, and even, then, he, even then he kills hear, her. But. Even hearing her, you know, even hearing him threaten her, the death or dismemberment yeah. of her children seems to not phase her, you know, and, and that's because he captures that emotion so well mm-hmm. like pal is is evil like and you believe in a sense that mitchum is evil and i think you can see maybe like why this film wasn't so loved um during it like during the during its period mm-hmm. you know gary cooper got offered the role and was like no i'm not gonna do that it's gonna destroy me um and like i guess uh you know Lawrence olivier thought like was interested in it which that would have been I don't know. I How, think this works too well. No, it works too well. But Lawrence Olivier would have went too far, I think. And like Or he would have gone far enough. Yeah. And and that's the thing. Mitchum goes super far, but so but far enough to where it's believable. It feels like you're watching an actual insane man. And that's why I said Robert Mitchum feels like he ceases to exist. Yeah, I agree because with you. Because you do not think that you're watching Robert Mitchum. You just think you're watching an actual insane person. Mm-hmm. When he does that, you know, the now iconic love hate thing mm-hmm. that does the fight with it. Like, oh, it's, you know, yeah. hate's gonna win on oh, no, the loves, loves around the yeah. It's so fucking abstractly bizarre and, well, and nuts. Yeah. And he's not like, saying anything. He's, and he's, he's actually like pressing his hands so far together, you can see the beads of sweat on Robert Mitchum's head. You could see the veins almost starting to pop out of his forehead. You think he would have died right then of like an aneurysm. But like it's funny. if that movie, if he had just exploded, I would have been like, that's believable. You know what the best part about that scene though is? Is that like right after he does it, he just kind of like relaxes again. Yeah. And he's like totally back to normal. He just did the most insane thing. That and didn't make everyone, any sense. And everyone, the, his, the first reaction is, that was beautiful. You know? I've never heard it better told. Yeah. It's like, what, what are you talking about? She's, that, I, love I hate that woman. Was that Mrs. Miss Spoon, right? Yeah. Oh, she's, she's the worst. She's the worst. Well, no. Pearl's the worst. Pearl is the worst. Um, but you know, you can sense why you 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 know, as a viewer, you can see like, holy shit, this guy's super evil. Hmm. But you can see, had you not seen the true nature behind that veil of Harry, why people would be enraptured by that because he's so utterly convincing. He's roughly he's ruggedly kind of like handsome he's you know so earnest in everything he says even though he's lying through his teeth but it feels truthful Mm. you know you can feel the manipulation you can feel the gamesmanship well it's funny because i so i first i forgot my copy of roger ebert's the great movies because both the movies you're going to do today are in the great movies and when he talks about night of the hunter he talks about it like it's a bad movie and it's one redeeming quality, and he, you know, he says a bunch of nice things about it at the end. Um, but just, you know, it's his tone is like this movie is crazy, but Robert Mitchum gives one of the great performances in the history of film. So, like, it's one of the, you know, it's a great movie. But when you watch it, it all really kind of makes sense. So, like, when they go on, you know, when the kids are on the river, and you have those like really 
false looking, but like ultimately breathtaking shots of like the horizon. Um, like, and you don't really know if the sun is coming up or going down and like the river looks totally fake. Like at one point when they get on the boat, when, um, Harry's chasing them and you can see like six jets, like just shooting into like where the boat is. Like, so there's things there that, you know, don't really work from a, like a continuity or a traditional movie sense. But all this work has been done, all these, all these really impressionistic and surrealist touches that have been becomes, kind of laid in there that you don't even, you're just kind you don't of, notice uh, you're just kind of entranced by every new shot becomes like a new layer and, to this craziness. And everything also kind of enhances like all the kind of flaws in, in Lawton's, you know, what he's doing. Yeah. Like obviously he was, you know, a young, not a young filmmaker, but a, it's his first movie, yeah. An experienced filmmaker um, only works to kind of enhance that sense of dreamlike quality. Like, like there's a part, you know, and I don't know, you don't even know if this is intentional, where Mitchum is, is watching the kids, has, you know, he's stuffing the money back into the doll, mm-hmm. and he's completely shrouded in darkness. And I don't think that's intentional, you know? Because mm-hmm. he never kind of steps out into the light, really. He's, it just feels like bad light it just feels like it was not necessarily bad lighting but just lighting that didn't really have much of a sense of uh, they didn't really think about it mm-hmm. but it works so well because it's he just looks like a silhouette mm-hmm. you know it's it's not it's not framed in a way that's kind of meant to draw you to that image but it just looks like it he looks like this death shadow um and so all those things that are maybe unintentional or they end up being flaws just work to enhance this state of it just being a dream of it being you know a waking nightmare well not only that is that he so there's all these you know all there's all those surrealist touches but nothing is implied either like he tells those kids he's gonna kill them Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like after he kills their mother um he it's not like he's hiding anything like the suspense here is not the kind of like withholding of details or it's the kind like, of will slow they... building of it's like i'm gonna kill you will it, will they be able to escape it right exactly and it's it's so graphic and but it's also just mesmerizing like all that stuff is just like Whoa. like every time he says something crazy just like that is it's it feels um terrifying but it also feels really compelling like overly compelling i mean mitchum like just sells the shit out of everything he does here I mean, he didn't get. There's no. There's no recognition of this except no. for the fact that it's. You know. I mean, now there is. Right, but at the time it was just kind of. You know, a one. I mean, I, I guess I read somewhere that he was making a movie for the same studio that they wanted to push, two. So like this movie, he they like Mitchum didn't even pay this movie much attention. Like after it got made, it was just you know got made and pushed out, and they used it to advertise this other movie that the studio was more focused on. Yeah. I wonder, too, in a sense, do you ever think, like, the surrealism of it is because... And I've, I I just thought about this while watching it this, this past time. We're supposed to see this film through the eyes of those those kids. Mm-hmm. Do we think that's the the choice of... To give it, like, an impressionistic aspect and a surreal aspect is because you're seeing... You're seeing him as bigger than life because it is told, framed through the narrative of them? 
That's a, that's interesting. Now, I've never idea. thought about that. And if that was that's true, it's kind of it's a bummer that Lot never went on to do further work um, with film because that's you know smart mm. kind of sense to go with because that's why it, maybe it feels so weird and feels so at times off um, is because of the fact that you know it is told through the eyes of of these kids. No, that would make a lot of that would make a lot of sense, especially when. It, um... You know, when they're on the run and like the, you know, the classic barn scene when they're sleeping and it, it's impossible to tell how much time has passed like while they're sleeping. And then all of a sudden the Reverend just kind of slowly walks by on the horizon um, and John, you know, John sees it and like there's no, there's no indication that um, the Reverend sees him. And all, but he freaks out about it. You know yeah. what I mean? And it kind of looks like a cartoon because it's just straight black on that kind of painted whatever color sunset colors. But that would be that would be that would be interesting. Um, or it's all just. I mean, the alternative is that it's all. So even if it's not from the kid's perspective, if it's all from his perspective, and he's an insane person, like maybe this is just kind of how it feels to him. I don't know. Maybe it's more of a sensual thing than it is like like a, an actual visceral feeling than it is a visual thing, um, but I think ultimately it doesn't really doesn't really matter. I mean, like the best stuff in this rivals. Like you made fun of Citizen Kane before, but it kind of rivals anything that Orson Welles was doing just from a control standpoint. Well, yeah, because well, Stan the Cortez did magnificent Ambersons too. The, mm-hmm. the cinematography on that, yeah, like, yeah it's his maybe only nomination mm-hmm. is for that. Um, that's a sad thing too. He didn't like he had some really good imagery in his career, um, like Magnificent Amersons. He did Shock Corridor, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a fever trip. Okay, um, and then he starts Chinatown, and then Polanski fired him. I would like to see Chinatown done by Stanley Cortez. Yeah, Chinatown's kind of flat. Chinatown is flat, super flat. But that's Polanski. Yeah, He's, if it, if the emotions don't catch, then I mean in Chinatown the emotions catch, so it works. And the script is so good. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's from a visual standpoint. It's just kind of... Yeah. But, no, this this is just... The reason, like I said, this film catches me is because I adore villains. And this is the, the standard by which all villains, you know, and, and villainous performances have to reach is, is just this. I think that's fair. I think a lot of... And I think a lot of people, like, would agree with you. I mean, it's not also. maybe my favorite villain because, like... In terms, it's not fun, and that's the thing. It's legitimately uncomfortable to watch at times. Yeah, I mean, it's it's thrilling. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say that it's like a good time. Mm. Um, but yeah, he's not Jeremy Ironsing it up. No, is that a reference to the first episode of The Watchmen on HBO? Oh, I don't watch that. No, I'm I'm saying like Scar or Simon Gruber, (laughs) because those are fun villains. Or the guy in Reversal of Fortune. Yeah, what's his name? I forget his name now. That's a good movie too. Doesn't matter. Or uh, what's the Cronenberg movie he did? Or well, he's not a villain in that though. <laughs> During... Dead Ringers. Did he get nominated for Dead Ringers? No, he didn't get nominated. No, no one gets nominated for Cronenberg movies. Just Dead Ringers. Mortensen one time. Dead Ringers is fantastic. If you haven't seen Dead Ringers, watch Dead Ringers. He won for a Reversal of Fortune though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, all right. Weird finish this. We this did one. it. Dead Ringers is good. <laughs> we turned. We we turned out of the Hunter into. Jeremy Irons podcast. I like Jer- Jeremy Irons a lot. I like fun. Jeremy Irons he's too. just 
He was good in the first episode of The Watchmen. Did you watch that? I did. No. I'm sorry. It actually wasn't bad. Oh. It's still television, which made me sad, but... Yeah. Is yeah. Dr. Manhattan not on that show? He's they uh, he, he's going to be. You know, when they How's show... Rorschach on that show? Isn't that a sequel? It's not really a sequel as much as he is. So Rorschach is... I don't think Rorschach is in it. They have... A, a, a white supremacist group has kind of co-opted some of Rorschach's beliefs and used it as like the basis of their belief system. It's because it is a sequel, right? It says after it's, yeah, it's not the like, alien attack. Yeah, thing. it's not like a direct sequel per se because a half of the characters I don't think are going to be in it. So, um, you know, Ozzy, obviously Ozymandias is in it. Mr. Manhattan's going to be in it. Like they show they show him like a TV clip of him on Mars and then they show it's it. It's played by Oscar Isaac. No, that would be awesome, though. Damn. Just redoing Apocalypse. <laughs> no, it's Billy Crudup again. Come on. <laughs> um, but I think that's going to be it. I think it's just the two guys. Um, and everyone else, I don't think. Like is... Night Owls? I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I don't. It's, like... again, it's television. Honest, I don't like Watchmen. I liked, I really like the comic book. It blew my mind when I read it. No. I don't like. The movie like... is hilarious. No, the movie's bad. Did you watch like the four-hour-long version of it? No, I, but I did see it in IMAX. Well, so I got to see. Uh, how did Patrick Wilson's butt look in IMAX? Well, the Patrick Wilson, <laughs> Malin Ackerman, sex scene to <laughs> Leonard in Co- IMAX. Leonard Cohen's right? Un- yeah, like the. Well, that's the thing. It's '80s Leonard Cohen too, so it's not even. It's like vaguely electronic and really stilted and stuff. It's just hilarious. It's hilariously terrible. I'm not sure why Zack Snyder thought it was a good idea. And I'm not sure why anybody likes anything that Zack Snyder does. But, you know, we'll have to get Armand White on the podcast to talk about that one day. He'll probably do it. He loves Armand, or Zack Snyder. I'm not surprised. Because of Jesus. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) Every DC movie up to a certain point is a religious allegory. Did you know that? No, no. Did you know that? No, I didn't. That's true. Man of Steel it's is fucking true. Man of Steel did not look like a Jesus allegory. It is. So it was Justice League. So, but not Aquaman. No, not James <laughs> Wan was like James Wan done. Did. He doesn't do that stuff. He's an atheist <laughs> or he's agnostic. I don't know. We have to ask James Wan. James Wan's like James Wan for some reason not listening to this podcast, but his ears perked up and was like, "What? Yeah, I'm definitely." I'm whatever. Pasta Saurian. Speaking of religious allegories, we'll be right back with my number 43. Welcome back. Um, so we're going to start a little pocket here of mine. Um, it's, you know, the Nick Cave. Too. We're going we're gonna to close out Pumpkin Week with some, some Nick Cave conversations. This one will be brief. Next week will be much month. longer. Pumpkin Month. With... Uh, which you would, I think you'd appreciate. I think Nick Cave would, would get into the, the, the you know, significance of the pumpkin beers, I guess. I don't think he drinks pumpkin beers. I, inside of myself, I have to believe that Nick Cave has never drank a pumpkin beer. But I feel like he'd understand. Would that change your opinion of Nick Cave? I feel like it probably would. Okay. I feel like it probably would. But my opinion of these people changes very easily, so we'll see. Um, so the reason I actually watched this movie is uh because of nick cave um my number 43 and that movie is vim vendor's 1987 film uh wings of desire i can't see you but i know you're here 
feel it. You've been hanging around since I got here. I wish I could see your face. Just look into your eyes and tell you how good it is to be here. Just to touch something. See, that's cold. I feel good. Here, to smoke. Have coffee. And if you do it together, it's fantastic. Or to draw. You know, you take a pencil and you make a dark line. Together it's a good line. But when your hands are cold, you rub them together. See, that's good. That feels good. There's so many good things. But you're not here. I'm here. I wish you were here. I wish you could talk to me. I'm a friend. Compañero. So yeah, me and my friend, um, John Paul, who I guess is um, maybe still my friend. I don't actually know where he is. You told me he's in, he's in Boston. Um, but I think I think it's weird that you have informed me of where John Paul is. Um, we were really good friends for a really long time, um, and we were both big Nick Cave fans. We heard Nick Cave was in this movie, and so we got a video cassette of Wings of Desire, and we watched it. And as it turns out, uh, he is not actually in the movie very much. Uh, Marion, the trapeze artist, listens to uh, the Carney on her record player in her in her trailer once, and then there is a performance of uh, the Carney and a pretty great performance of um, From Her to Eternity. Um, before which Nick Cave says we get a snippet of his thoughts and he says don't say I want to tell you about a girl don't say I want to tell you about a girl and he first says I want to tell you about a girl which is how From Her to Eternity always starts <laughs> From Her to Eternity it's fucking great um, So, but it's not a Nick Cave movie it is a movie about angels and it is a movie about angels hearing things and seeing things and reporting on things, witnessing things, and but not being able to fully experience those things. Uh, Bruno Gans plays Demiel, and he is one of those angels. Um, he is, you know, there's angels everywhere. Um, there's a scene in the library. Where and this takes place in Berlin, uh, in the eighties. Um, there's a scene in the library, and there's just angels all over the place watching people read and 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 talk and think and write things and walk around and you know do whatever. Um, and that's his whole life, and he's been here forever. There's a part where he's talking to his friend. I guess they're friends, right? They seem like friends. Oh, Casile. Yeah. Um, they're talking about like the beginning of existence. They sit in a car together. Yeah, they do say that. I mean, then that's like a really wonderful scene. But they they talk at one point, and they're just they're walking around, and they're talking about the, like the beginning of existence, and and how they were there from the very beginning, and like people came and they and and they laughed that one time, and you know um, that's how they learned how to talk, and they've just been looking at what God made 
forever and just well, think, God's, God's think about it. God's not mentioned in this. God's not mentioned in it, but you have to assume that they're to have they do say witness and they do say testify and if there's witnessing and there's they're testifying to something they have to be witnessing it for somebody and testifying to somebody i don't i don't get the impression that it's a nietzsche and like people made this structure well there's like an albert camus discussion there's a little bit of a camus thing yeah um but i get the impression that there's that there is a there is an overarching being that is has put these things in in place and kind of set them off in motion and it's just the angels are here to just look at it and to just talk about it but damiel has he has he wants to feel things you know what i mean he wants to feel like we uh, you know we heard in the clip that i played because the trailer for this is just music and pictures all the trailers for this is just music and pictures so i you know, i cut one of the peter falk things um he's missing all of like the little pleasures in life, like the sensual pleasures in life, like feeling hot and cold or, you know, rubbing your hands together or like, you know, he mentions like, like the phrase that really stuck with me is like the weight of things. Like he's never been able to experience like the, like the true weight of anything, which I think is because every time he, it's shown like every time he picks something up, it's, it's just kind of like a facsimile of the real thing. And he just looks at it and studies it and like wonders about it. And, you know, like the library with the pencil, or he touches Marion's shoulder. Like, does he really, does he actually touch her? Does, you know, um, I don't think it's, I have to imagine when you watch this movie, you're like, yeah, I know I don't watch Tom likes this movie. This seems like a Tom movie. You know what I mean? And I think it's a pivotal film for me. I think it would, would actually be higher, except for a hot take that I'm going to unleash soon. Um, because it's just, I just, I just love it. I love every minute of it, and there's moments of it that like are, I get really, really emotional watching. And they're, I think they're the moments that like you're supposed to get emotional watching because they're filmed and the, the the cinematography in this movie is fucking incredible. It's uh, Henri Alicon. Um, it actually makes like '80s Berlin seem like an, an eternal city. Like it's just looked this way forever. You know what I mean? It seems like an old structure that's always been like half burned down and destroyed. Um, but when Cassiel is sitting in the back of that car and he's just kind of and he's, you know, um, or the all the moments with Cassiel and the Holocaust. You know what I mean? So they're not able to really they're not able to feel the weight of things like the physical weight of a pencil or a notebook or like a cup of coffee or whatever, but they are emotionally burdened with the knowledge of things. So like the Holocaust, for instance, you know what I mean? He's clearly, he just sat there and watched while Berlin burned to the fucking ground while Jews like fled for their lives and stuff like that. Later when that, um, that guy kills himself and he jumps off the building, he tries to kind of place a hand on him and, and stop him, which you know is a thing that happens a couple of times in the movie. They can, they can kind of redirect people's thoughts, um, and it doesn't work. You know what I mean? And he he he, you know, he screams. It's like the first real nine um, um, utter like you know visceral utterance of one of of one of them. They, the rest of the time they've just been talking. You know what I mean? And it might be it sounds like passionate talk, but it's just talking. This is like an outcry. Um, and I just, I find it all so, I, I find the whole idea of it so moving and so 
beautiful and the shot so beautiful and that old man who's I think was a they don't they don't ever say that he's a survivor but he knew he knew Berlin before the war and yeah, he's Homer. looking for it. yeah but he's looking for it he's looking for it everywhere and he keeps calling himself the storyteller because he's the person that's seen everything and he's people are going to need to know about like what what happened um well that introduction to him in the library is just tremendous where he says like the people no longer talk to each other they read now in in mm-hmm. the rose or what what has he said it? Yeah, yeah, I don't forget exactly what it is, but um but even like when he gets when he they walk. I mean that scene when they're walking just in that kind of you know, that lot and they stop at that chair. I mean the angle of that shot is like the movement of that shot is just is utterly breathtaking and then he just sits in that chair and he's like, I'm gonna I'm not gonna stop until I find and I'm not gonna try to pronounce the German thing, but like, you know, the 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 place where uh, he Potsdamer that Platz. was sit that was yeah. there, you know what I mean? And he's never gonna find it. But I, 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 and you wonder what he's, you wonder what exactly he needs to see to feel like he's found it. Because we can see from the footage that that place has disappeared. You know what I mean? Um, it's gone. Something else is in its place. You mentioned Peter Falk before. Um, there's a really interesting Peter Falk performance in here, which really surprised us at the time because, you know, we just Peter Falk was Columbo, and literally that's it. Not even the grandpa from Princess Bride. I was, I guess I knew he was the Princess Bride, but Peter Falk was Columbo. The grandfather from Princess Bride wasn't a cultural figure. Columbo was Columbo. Clearly from this movie, Columbo is Columbo. Um, if it was Andy Griffith, the people would have just said Matlock, which would have been a different movie. They should remake it with Andy Griffith as the Peter Falk character. Um, we get lots of Peter Falk's thoughts. He's there to shoot a movie about, like, the Nazis. Um, you know, he's an American detective brought over from his brother, whatever. It doesn't matter. He gives an interview where he's essentially just saying it doesn't really make any difference. Um, turns out he's an angel. Or he used to be an angel, and he took the plunge. And Damiel, Bruno Gans, fucking Bruno Gans, who just died this year, um, he takes the plunge too. And you know that's when he finds out that Peter Falk used to be an angel like thirty years ago. He and he was in New York, and he took the plunge, and everything's so good now. Smoking and you know coffee together, everything's so good. You draw the line. I love that. I love the drawing things. Because it's so nonsensical, it's just like you draw a thick line and then you draw a little line and together it's a good line. Like, that doesn't really even mean anything, but I kind of understand what he's saying. The reason I think that this movie is 43 and not like 18 or whatever, higher number, is when it goes to color for the rest of the movie, it makes me sad. And it is less... It seems less good. I care less. We were talking about with the laundromat and with High Flying Bird about like stakes. Um, the stakes with it's weird because I think the movie is meant to say that like these these are the real stakes. You know what I mean? Like now he can die, and he's tying his his happiness and his life to this the idea of of this woman, this this trapeze artist, um, who he's kind of fallen in love with, but the stakes. Everything's so beautiful and heavy in the black and white parts um, that when it finally shifts to color all the way, and like I love the I love the momentary shifts to color when 
those moments when there's not an angel watching them is are fascinating. Um, but when it finally shifts to color all the way, it bums me out. And I just feel, I don't feel bad for him. Like, oh, he's going to die one day. I'm just like, well, I don't care anymore. And, it, and I don't know if that makes me a bad person or like a bad film goer or like I'm not responding to the movie correctly that I don't care anymore. But the stakes, the stakes now seem so low when before they were humongous. Like, they were humongous, but so little. Like, I've been playing with this bottle cap the whole time, and it's been, like, cutting into my finger, and I can just imagine, like... He's not bleeding, guys. No, it's not, like, ripping my flesh. But I'm imagining, like, if there was an angel here, like, maybe he would be looking, like, oh, I wonder what that feels like. You know what I mean? And that, to me, as... I mean, I, I, I'm assuming people could guess based on, like, the, some of the things I've talked about, is, like, the almost one of, the, like, the most significant questions. You know what I mean? Like, how do you... How do you know the unknowable thing about life? But then he just knows everything, and everything sucks. Like, I live now. Like, he trades in the coolest coat in the world for the stupidest coat in the world. You know what I mean? Um, and it, it just, it like, crashes into itself, and it bums, it, 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 um, it makes me less happy. And, and I think that's, that's my biggest problem with this, is, is I fail to care about the, the central conflict and the central emotion of you know Damiel and um, Marion's like relationship mm-hmm. and, and like his his kind of obsession with her in that sense. Um, the black and like as it starts, it's it's gorgeous. Like going through a modern architecture of of a Berlin library. But you you know in in the sh- way it's shot, you get that angularity. It becomes in a way almost alien. It's 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 you know, the way in which shadows to bounce off things or even like the light on the stair rail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going into outside when the kids are you know, the three kids are playing and the one kid's by himself and the shot kind of wavers back over to the uh circus tent. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's angularity to it that feels distinctly removed from the way in which we see the world, the way in which the world sees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that even like when you get those, I don't like those brief moments of color even, and I don't like when it becomes color because it's so saturated then, and it's not even loud, it just becomes, it's dulled. It has, as though... What's in, dulled? It, the, the sense of, of angles, the sense of perspective, it, it melts into each other. And so, in a way... When you see it in black and white, when you get those shots of him, you know, standing on the rooftop and looking down at the city, mm-hmm. you know, the city feels as though it can cut you. You know, it feel you feel it. Well, it's but almost then the, when it goes yeah. to color, you lose that. So it's almost like it's a weird juxtaposition of of what Daniel is is craving. Well, you know, it, it gets... loses that sense of, of touch. It loses that sense of feeling it loses that emotive sense yeah because it seems so real in black and white but then in color it seems so false and when the color is when the color is just kind of dipped in it seems bland and i can justify like some of the like some of the saturation choice, yeah. it, like it seems vaguely technicolor like mm-hmm. like it was painted in some spots but i was like well maybe that's you know you could justify that like metaphorically or symbolically or whatever but when it just goes to all color you're just like is this what life looks like? Like, really? Like, was this worth it? Like, I don't know. I don't know if it was worth it. And it, the, the questions... The I don't... Qu- I, I think it's just bad film stuff. 
Almost. But I have to imagine the whole thing is so carefully orchestrated that I, I have to imagine that, like, it looks that he probably made it, he probably saturated it, however much it's saturated, in the sense, in the same way that he kind of saturated the black and white, you know what I mean? Like, some of those blacks are very black. And some of the white, and some of the grays are, like, veering towards white. And, and there's a blown out quality to some of the outdoor scenes where, like, the sun is really prevalent. And I would agree, but it feels as though from a artistic and narrative standpoint that there's no kind of turnaround in, in, in terms of, like, thinking that this choice was a mistake or, you know, Peter Falk when he has that great scene of describing, you know, in that, like, little food cart thing. Mm-hmm. That food stand, like describing what life is like, like you know, taste a coffee and smoke yeah. a cigarette, and together they're great. Being able to like draw, you know, like like there's no sense that like the choice of being made to kind of like become human has a sense of kind of actual stakes to it. You know, it feels ultimately like that is yeah the well, correct right. choice. So to then saturate it in a way that it becomes so bland when he he becomes human seems to reject the the narrative that's being told to you it's funny because i i always because the black and white feels so much more vividly alive well like i know you said that you like i feel like i yeah. feel like i'm watching more of a living creature well and i guess when it's in the black and, and white. i guess i understand in the black and white like what his fascination is with what daniel's fascination is with even with with marion in the sense that like she is you know, when he first sees her, she's wearing angel wings and she's like on the trapeze, but she's thinking thoughts, very grounded thoughts, but like her thoughts align with his thoughts. Yeah. You know what I mean? She is the first Time heals pers- everything right. unless time itself is a disease. She is think she is the first person we meet that's thinking roughly the same type of thoughts that he is. But he's here, he can't touch her. And she can experience all these things. You know what I mean? She can, you know, he's looking at the pictures that she's got on the mirror. She's lived this whole life. You know what I mean? She can, the, you know, he mentions the curve of the neck in the car. And, like, he kind of puts his hand on, like, the curve of her neck. Um, and all this, you know, all this sensory stuff that he thinks is just so amazing when it we get to understand it in the way that we understand life unless we're, you know, no, even if you're colorblind, you're not seeing it in black and white. Um, when we get to understand it in the way that we normally understand it, everything seems less good. And it seems like the, the, the plunge that he took was the wrong choice. <laughs> no, and exactly. I think you and me are probably on the outside, maybe, of that. I feel like everyone finds... I feel like all the things I've read find this movie so beautiful that, like, it's like that ending is beautiful. And, like, the ending is great because Nick Cave is great. And, like, the long speech she gives, I get it. Like, now they're... She's saying, like, now there's stakes, essentially. You know what I mean? Um, but I don't feel those stakes anymore. I felt those stakes in my heart and, and during the black and white scenes. And I feel the stakes more, and that's the, my biggest problem is just, like, that is the, the thing is, like, Damiel and her relationship, the stakes feel so low compared to the stakes that Cassiel deals with in the sense that Cassiel's dealing with the choice with to the, not do it. Yeah. The choice not to do it, but then to then feel in his own, like he's 
like Damiel seems to not be able to understand that they do feel an emotional mm. thing, maybe even more uniquely human than human. In mm. like the torture in Cassio's voice when he says nine, when the man jumps, you know, and 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 the overwhelming way in which that ruins him and then he turns away from you know the choice to become human from that because he understands necessity and and the importance of feeling an emotion that you can't even begin to capture you know talking about the holocaust i think that's 100 percent even more kind of renownedly pronounced when peter falk is kind of drawing the the photo of the extra mm. um the picture of the he extra talks and he extras. talks about um these people you know, are extras extra. are just extras and like nothing but extra human in the same way. And then it goes into the ho- discussion of the Holocaust on a yellow star, mm. you know, and like why yellow It's the color of sunflowers and Vincent van Gogh killed himself. And, you know, him being, having made that choice himself, um, you know, he still retains that sense of the great stakes, but now it's kind of mm. lost and dwindling. It's, it's slowly it's, it's been fading reduced away. To, it's been reduced to lines on a piece of paper. Yeah. It's reduced to him saying this is a bad drawing. Whereas Cassiel still lives in this world, and the black and white world to me is so vividly defined, and the lines are so sharp and cut that everything is absolute. And this, everything has... And that's why, like, you know, the the entire essence of um, Otto Sanders' kind of, like, story feels more like the interesting film to me than than Damiel. What's Damiel? And Bruno Ganz is great in this. Right. I think uh, though I think part of the I think part of the magic of this film though is all of those things. I think I'm not a Vin Vendors fan per se. I haven't really seen very many of his yeah, movies. I haven't seen a lot. I don't like Buena Vista Social Club. I don't like Paris Texas. I, exactly. Um from my scene. I don't think I even finished Paris Texas. I think one of the reasons I love this movie I love this movie I have a like a deep emotional like feeling for this movie, and to the point where like when it goes, like I said, when it gets color, I I feel sad. Your comment about the lines, though, I think, is really perceptive. In the sense that he's still an he's still a master filmmaker, mm-hmm. in the same vein as like lots of other master filmmakers. So those black and white lines. That you talk about, like the cut, like the, how real every, how vivid everything seems in black and white. There's a relationship to that, to like what Peter Falk is saying about his about the lines. You know what I mean? Just like how there's a relationship between like uh, Marion and like what she does versus like what Cassiel and Demiel do. You know what I mean? Um, there's all these really, really elegant relationships created throughout the whole movie, and like. The burden of being human, that like knowing you're gonna die, versus the burden of having to watch everybody die forever. You know what I mean? Like there's these brilliant juxtapositions throughout the movie that aren't forced or aren't ham-fisted. They're perfectly earned and they're really beautiful. Um, that for me lends itself to like a lot of repeat viewings. Like this is a movie now, especially that it's on Criterion. Um, I won't have to. I won't have to rent it every time. Just kind of like these images kind of start popping into my head, and I have to watch it. Um, but it's it's um, 
yeah, it's a really lovely movie, and I'm like, it's one of those movies that like I'm glad I have it in my life. And I would, I think it's one of those things that like I, I, I haven't shown it to a lot of people. Like I, I used to show movies to people like on dates and things. Like, you know, I remember one day I feel like I talked about this on the podcast where we watched Rules of the Game. Yeah, I think I remember that. <laughs> and like. You're not supposed to watch Rules of the Game on a date, but like I felt like compelled, like I just watched. That might have been a Side Street Cafe. Oh, maybe. Though. So I just bought like the Criterion's new edition of the Renoir Rules of the Game, and I was just like, "Oh my god, Rules of the fucking Game! This is like the greatest movie ever!" And like I just called a, like a girl I was dating. I was like, "You have to come over and watch Rules of the Game," and she's just like, "What are they doing?" And I'm just like, Don't. "Fuck it." And even like my wife now, like I showed her like Amadeus, like the first within the first week of us dating, and I feel like she fell asleep. I was like, oh, I don't want to understand. See, that's why. But I've have, never. That's showed... why I have to have a pretty typical top ten, so that way, like when you show people these movies, they're like, oh, okay. But I've never. I sh- often show people movies on my pivotal list. But yeah. Like, yeah, that's great. And I'm like, oh. I've never I'm shown so anyone this movie. I actually was like, it's because it feels like, kind of how you talk about with like Shattered Glass, like. Obviously, people, you know, it's on Roger Ebert's great movies list. That was not lost on me. Um, but I had seen it way before I had read that book. Um, but it still feels like a personal, like, movie, like a poem that you kind of just, like, have tucked, like, a piece of paper that you've ripped out of another book and, like, tucked into another book and it's just there. And then you're going to open that book one day and it's just going to kind of fall out and be like, oh, yeah, this poem, whatever. Um, that, but that's Wings of Desire for me. You know what I mean? Well, that makes sense. So, um, Anything else? I guess we gotta do the outro. I'm kind of sick of the outro. Yeah. Aren't you sick of the outro? Yeah. How do people do like have been doing a podcast for like a hundred years? Do the same thing over and over. Because it over becomes again. automatic. It's like if you want. Why is it automatic ready? for us? I'll say it. If you want to talk about your things that you share with people, <laughs> you can tweet us at twitter.com/slash/filmpivotal. Or you can uh, send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the beers that we drink and oh, those, uh, those the beers. movies that are on our list and uh, how to subscribe to our podcast and how to get to Twitter if you stink at the internet. Which, I mean, all of us do. Every time I jump on the internet, I end up on Pornhub. Every time I jump on the internet, I forget what I'm doing and I just do nothing. I go to ESPN.com and like, no, nothing happened in sports today. Or I go to NewYorkTimes.com. I was like, there's not a red breaking sign under this story, so I, I don't have to go I go here. to Reddit, and I'm like, wow. There's so many misogynists out there. Oh, my God. I, I, I think Reddit, like, just gets them all together. Just all of them. It does. That's true. All right. But everyone. They see red, and they get excited. Everyone. We're all going to get together this week. We're going to watch a movie. We're going to watch The Lighthouse. We're going to drive 70,000 miles to go see it. Yeah, we. Well, so we're each going to a different movie theater that is not anywhere even close lo- to our houses. How long have you been driving? Two days? Two, Two weeks? weeks. <laughs> It'll be 53 minutes for me. I checked today. I'm not Yeah, it's like 40 minutes. Um, but yeah, go see The Lighthouse, drink a beer, uh, uh, pumpkin beer, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.